morning. So it's great to see you this morning. Uh, my name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and um, I'll add my welcome to Todd. We're glad you're here if you're visiting with us. All right, so uh, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Um, we are walking through Paul's letter uh, to the Romans, and we are um, in the midst of, in the middle of an, of an argument that Paul is making. He's wanting to clarify um, uh, the, the position that every person stands in when they stand before God. And so he has started the letter off by telling the Romans, hey, he can't wait to get there and he wants to come because he, he wants to pr- come preach the gospel because the gospel's the good news and the good news has the power of God for salvation. And because it's the power of salvation of God for everybody who believes because in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It's um, made available for anybody that would believe. And so what Paul wants to do is he now is systematically saying, he's wanting to um, clarify for us, he's wanting to make the point why this is in fact good news that God would make his righteousness available to us. Um, And the righteousness is, is that which we need to be able to stand before God. And so, but why is this, why is this good news for everybody who believes? Well, I, um, I want to start off by sort of setting, setting the stage for you, and I can think of no better way to do that on the opening day of the Dallas Cowboys season than to talk about two men who became extremely rich in the last week. The first of those guys is a guy named Ezekiel Elliott, okay? And he's made rich through a contract negotiated with the Dallas Cowboys. And that contract is um, pure and unadulterated what we would call a meritocracy, all right? A system in which the talented are chosen and moved ahead on the basis of their achievement. So if you don't know the story, what happened? So Zeke uh, Elliott, Ezekiel Elliott, uh, um, or Zeke, you know, as, as we know him, call him. Um, <laughs> so he's been holding out. And, and what that means is, uh, so a player will hold out when um, he is, um, a lot of times early in his career, and he's at the height, he, you know, he, he's the best of the best, and he's holding out because of what he wants is he wants a contract um, that's going to take him through the rest of his career. And, um, uh, and, and so that, that's what they do. They, they, you, you, you hold out until you can negotiate for a contract. And sometimes that happens uh, quickly, depending on how big the contract is, how good the player is. Sometimes it takes a while because you have a player that's really great, but you have contract demands that are really high. So, so interestingly enough, I, I actually have been holding out... Um, the Cowboys for, oh gosh, over 20 years now, and um, we, we haven't come to any agreement, so, uh, but I continue to not show up for training camp, um, but here's what happened, so it, we, they got to the end of it, the, the, the seasons in, in earnest starts today, they came to, um, uh, on Tuesday, they came to a, a, an agreement, and it, so it's a $90 million extension 
And what it means is $103 million over the next eight years, and $50 million of that is guaranteed. So it's the highest guarantee uh, that a running back's ever had. He'll be the top-paid running back in the NFL, the first Cowboys running back to eclipse $100 million. This is what Jerry Jones said. He says, Zeke has been arguably our best player. And I'm not trying to be unfair to anybody else, but he's a vital part to our success. We're glad to get him booked in. We're glad to have him on the team. And so that you can go and you can read all the stats about Ezekiel Elliott. And he really is. He's the, he's the real deal. Um, if you were going to pay any running back in the league, the highest running back salary, it would be Ezekiel Elliott. Now, let me tell you about another man that became extremely rich this last week. This guy's name is Gary DeSalvo. Maybe some of you know that name. And while his riches, they were not based on meritocracy like, like Zeke Elliott's were, his were based on grace. And, and so grace is defined this way. It's unmerited dignity and honor, and it's freely granted. It, it's joyfully bestowed on someone uh, to joyfully bestow on someone what they cannot earn or achieve or deserve. So I'll tell you a little bit about him. Um, he, so he graduated from DTS, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, in 1981. Um, from there, he went to a little church in Temple, Temple Bible Church. Um, and he took the position of pastor there. And so for the last 38 years, um, he has pastored Temple Bible Church um, about six years ago, he was diagnosed with cancer and um, uh, preached up until, um, even through all of that, pre preached up until just last month, till August 11th, and then two weeks later, um, he died. Been married for 43 years. But today, he finds himself, um, and has been, but face-to-face, -face, reconciled to God forever. Now, here's where I want to draw the, the analogy. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott can do things Gary DeSalvo was never able to do. I mean, ever. And if you were wearing football lenses, say you took lenses and you, you know, football lenses, uh, Ezekiel Elliott ranks above Gary DeSalvo always and forever, okay? But if you take off those lenses, and in fact, you strip away all of the lenses through which you might judge somebody to be to be good or to be valuable or to be noteworthy, and you strip all the lenses away, and, and all you're left with is Ezekiel Elliott and Gary DeSalvo, and they're standing side by side. They're on even ground. How do you tell which is the better man? How, how do you decide who, who it is that you'd want to have lunch with or who it is that you'd you know, pick for your team. How do you judge that? Okay, hang with me for one second. So, so here's what Paul is going to do in chapter 2. He, he's going to help us understand the criteria by which God judges people. So, when we get to chapter 3, it, it, Paul's going to, you know, 
tell us clearly what makes somebody good. And in chapter 3, he's going to tell us what qualifies somebody for righteousness. But, but Paul wants us to understand before we get there, what, what, we have to have this clear understanding of what it means to be judged, how we are judged. In other words, what kind of lenses does God look through when he's judging people? And here's the thing, it, it, so it's not athletic ability, of course not, it's not bank accounts, it's not your heritage or your DNA, you know. Every person stands on their own before God, and the ground is level. And, and the argument, Paul will sum it up in verse 11, and he'll say, God is impartial. He does not play favorites. His scales are even. And nobody inherently stands in a place of advantage. And nobody inherently stands in a place of disadvantage. And so he's going to show us how it is that God judges. All right. So, um, Paul, he, he can't wait to get there um, to preach the gospel. Can't wait to get to Rome. He wants to see them. And this section in, in chapter 2 actually begins all the way back up in chapter 1, verse 18, where he says the wrath of God is being revealed. And it's being revealed on all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And the readers of this letter, for the last several verses, the last half of what we have now is chapter 1, the, the readers would have been nodding their head and saying, that's right, Paul, um, the, 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 the wrath is going to be poured out on all those um, uh, un, unrighteous people, ungodly people, all those idol worshipers, that's right, Paul, preach it, Paul, is what they would have been saying. But Paul here in chapter 2 is going to turn the table on his readers. And while he's been talking about those people, the they people out there, notice what he does beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, or O oh woman, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on His riches and His kindness and His forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, so he looks at him and he says, okay, you have no excuse. He, he's already said uh, several verses before this, chapter 1, verse 20, that the the Gentiles, the pagans, the non-believers, the idol worshipers, they don't have an excuse. He's already said that. But now he turns to what appears to be Jewish people, people that know the law, people that know morality, people that 
um, people that would have been in the church to hear this letter read, the good people. He turns to them and he says, you have no excuse. And here's why you don't have an excuse. is because you pass judgment on, on others. You, you look at them and you say, okay, well, that, that's right. Those people out there, they are bad. They will get what they deserve. And, and when you do that, you become the judge. Now, th this is a rhetorical question, which means I'll ask it. And then you just answer it in your mind. So, so don't, like, raise your hand, okay? Have you ever judged anybody? H have you ever sort of set yourself up as the standard and judged anybody? Th let me make it more specific, because some of you, the out you're going to go is, well, I, I don't know, you're not giving me an example, so probably not. Have you ever been in the left-hand lane <laughs> behind someone who should have been in the right-hand lane <laughs> and think to yourself, those people, the wrath of God's waiting for them. Because when I'm in the left-hand lane, I mean business. Right? I mean, I wouldn't do that. Well, that's an easy one. But we do it all the time. We do it when we judge how other people spend money or the messes people get themselves into. Or the way they raise their children. We, we actually, if, if all were revealed... We judge lots of things. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, you, 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 are, you bring condemnation on yourself when you do that. Listen, no, everybody's got standards, and the truth is nobody lives up to even their own standards. Verse 2, you're going to be judged rightly. You're going to be judged according to, to truth. That's literally what Paul is saying. Nobody survives the judgment based on their own standards. I mean, if you were just standing before God and he said, okay, listen, forget my standards. Let me just judge you based on your standards. You don't pass. Much less being able to stand on the day of judgment and survive God's standards. So in, in verses 3 and 4, he's saying, do you suppose, so you, you practice such things, do you think you'll escape the, the judgment of God? God is, don't you know his riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Don't you know he's been, he's been wanting to draw you to repentance? Don't you know? That's what Paul's saying. Which, when he says that, he echoes. He, he echoes out of the Old Testament, and he echoes out of the New Testament, and he echoes what it is that Jesus says. See, you, you, you think you're good, or, or at least not as, 
bad in the sense that, that those people are bad and that you somehow have a leg up on this deal. And yet, what Paul's doing is he's saying, look, you don't have an excuse. You're, you're ready. You, you are primed for condemnation yourself. Because you've lulled yourself into the fact of thinking that somehow you're good. Because you've looked and said they're not. These people Paul's writing to, what he's assuming about them, because Paul knows people, okay? Is is that that what what happens is when when you look around and and you somehow have judged that you you know what I'm I'm doing pretty good I'm I am pretty good here or, or at least I'm able to keep things together on the outside you, what what it means is you don't have you, you don't see in yourself a need to repent you you don't realize that God is patiently holding back his judgment to give you an opportunity to come to your senses. It, one writer points to it and says, it, it, you can almost think of this as, as Jesus' parable explained, the parable of, the, of the, um, uh, the prodigal son. You know, where, where clearly at the end of chapter 1, you, you have the son who ran away and did all the bad stuff, and, you know, clearly he's bad. But you have the older brother, and the whole point of the parable was not only did this one need to come to his senses and, and come back home, and he's greeted with grace from the father, but the older brother as well, who was standing outside, he needed to repent. Both sons were lost. And so he says in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul wants them to know they are in the same boat. Those two words, hard and impenitent heart, um, they're, they're two Greek words. And if you, if you went back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. So Old Testament's written in Hebrew. They translated it into Greek about 250 B.C. But if you went back and you searched for those words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what they, what, the context that you always find those in is when Israel is being accused of idolatry. Where they're guilty of idolatry. It is, it is indicative of their idolatry. Their, their, their heart is hard. Against God. They, they have made their outward goodness, their um, ability um, to look good, their ability to follow the rules, their ability to be law abiders. They have made that their God. It has become a form of idolatry. They, they are worshiping their own self-worth because of their morality. They are seeking to save themselves by how good they are. I want you to see where Paul goes 
in this next section with his argument. So I'm going to pick up in verse 6, and I want you to see verses 6 through 11, because they go together, and this is what he says. After he says, you're going to store up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment, righteous judgment will be revealed. Then he says, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Okay. Verse 6. He will render, he will grant, he will reward to each one according to his works. Now, what in the world does Paul mean here? In the context of judgment, you're going to be judged according to your works. And if they're found to be good, then you get good stuff. You know, he'll give you eternal life. And if not, wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. What, 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 what exactly is Paul doing here? What does he mean? So, so it's interesting. And if, you, if we were to back up, so I mean, a few weeks ago, we were looking at Romans 1, 16 and 17. And, and, and where Paul is making the argument that the righteousness of God, it's, it's revealed um, through faith. I mean, that, that, that that's granted to you by faith, that, that you, you, you're not saved by what you do. You are um, saved because of what Jesus did, and you receive what Jesus did by faith. I mean, that, that's how you're saved. And, and yet what Paul says here, it seems, in, in Romans 2, 6, is, no, listen, you're going to be judged by your works and that you'll get what you deserve based on those. So, so, so what's Paul doing? Well, let me say a couple of things. One, um, Paul is quoting in verse 6 from Psalm 62, okay? And I've, I've got it marked here. So, I mean, I've got the um, preacher. We, we have these things, you know, and like I knew this was coming. And so you're welcome to turn to Psalm 62 if you want. I, 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 and if you do, I'll show you a couple of things. If not, you can just listen. You'll be all right. Um, your Bible probably has, a, if you have cross-references... You've got a cross-reference there. But, but David, in, in Psalm 62, he's writing, and he's, um, uh, th th there are two different kinds of people that he's talking about in Psalm 62. And, and the first kind of people are the people, and th they're plotting against 
the king, David. I mean, so David's God shows the king. They're, they're plotting against him. They're, they're people who lie. They're, they're people who are hypocrites. They say one thing. They, they do another thing. Kind of like what Paul's been talking about in Romans chapter 2 up to this point. Now, there's another group of people represented by David in this. And so just hear these words of David. Verse 1. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Then he talks about the people who are the hypocrites. And then he says in verse 5, says, for, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is in him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I, I shall not be shaken. Oh God, rest, on God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, oh people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. You... you can't trust in, in who your parents were, he'll go on to say. You can't trust in, in what you've been able to accumulate. You, you can't trust in what you've, what you've robbed or what you've earned. For God will render to a man according to his work. That's how he concludes it. One of the questions you ask in Psalm 62, well, what's the work? Did, well, the work of one people is, well, they're hypocrites. They, they're trying to get ahead in this life. They're, they're trying to, you know, they're, they're putting on airs. They're, they're trying to look good. They're, they're doing all these things. They're, they're, they're trying to, to make it. And, and yet the other people, you know what they're doing? They're waiting on God in silence, put their hope in Him. They confess, He's my salvation What's their work? They're trusting in God. Now, that partly answers the question, God will render according to their works. But Paul's going to get more specific here. So secondly, what I need to say about this is that the point of this section is to show the reader the the impartiality of God, that God is not partial. He wants to make crystal clear that when it comes to the judgment of God, nobody gets a pass because of who their parents are or if they grew up in the church or where it is they were born or what their 23andMe results are. None of that. The election privilege that the Jews had claimed, you know, to, Paul's speaking, he's going to speak directly to it in the next section, but listen, um, it, it doesn't keep the Jews from judgment, nor does the Gentiles' status of being not elect, that in and of itself doesn't prevent them from eternal blessing. He, he's establishing that, that God is going to judge fairly and impartially 
And he's going to show us that the law is the standard of judgment. Now, what Paul's not doing, he's not talking to us about how a person gets saved. He's establishing the basis on which someone is judged. Paul will talk to us in the next chapter about how someone is saved. But here he wants to make clear we know what the standard is by which we are going to be judged. How is it that God judges? And he judges impartially. And in fact, what he'll end up saying, the conclusion of the deal, I mean, to spoil the end of the story for you, in Romans chapter 3, he concludes, nobody's righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. All have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So Paul's point here is not to establish how is somebody saved. It is to establish that nobody gets to take a moral high ground with God. So this is how the judgment would work, if you were wondering, picking up in verse 7. To, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. That's how it was always supposed to work, by the way. It's what we were created for in the image of God, to seek these things, to seek glory and honor and, and immortality. Glory is the, the manifestation of God himself. And honor refers to the approval of God and, and immortality, the, the, the never-changing joy of the presence of God, that, that our lives would be completely and totally consumed with that. If from, if from your very first breath, it's been your constant and abiding patient pursuit man you, you, you've lived unstained from sin in the world you, you've lived as you were originally created to live and sin somehow didn't stain you and yet the problem is sin has stained every single one of us you want to know the standard that's the standard Nobody meets it. Unfortunately, verses 8 and 9, we all qualify in verses 8 and 9. Look at what it says. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those are terrible words. And used together, it just like heats up this Intensity. And he says there will be tribulation and distress, which is, which is also a terrible combination of words. It's both the consequence and the experiencing the consequence. 
It's not just the punishment of God's wrath. It is the heightened experience of God's wrath. It's it's not dazed and and confused. It's, It's fully aware, fully present, experiencing to the fullest capacity the wrath of God. human being, literally every human soul. And he says, the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's chronological there. We'll talk about that later. In verse 10, but, but now back to the if you've been unstained from sin since your first breath, and yet none of us have, but, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then verse 11, so now that you know the standard by which God judges, God shows no partiality. That's what he says. No partiality works both ways. The Jews, the Jews they will in judgment be, be eligible for eternal judgment. On the same note, the, the Gentiles, they also, by, by the standard, are eligible for eternal peace, and God will reward to those what it is that they've done. That's the standard by which He judges. He judges all people on the same basis. You, you get no advantage because you're here this morning. You, you, see, you see what he's saying here? So, look at verse 12 through 16. We'll, we'll wrap this up. Um, this, for all have sinned, verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But those who know God's commands and don't obey Him, they're going to be judged by the law. So, so he's saying, listen, don't think that knowing the law, just knowing the law is of any use to you. The only path to righteousness through the law, is to obey it. And it's as though Paul is saying in the background, because he will say later, the only way is if you obey it, and you obey it perfectly. And are any of you here going to claim that you always obey God's law perfectly? That's what he's saying. And then in verse 14... So, for, for, the gen, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So, so Paul's, you know, how can people be judged according to a standard that they didn't know? The Gentiles, they didn't have the law. And Paul says, hey, listen, everybody is, is, is born, that there's this inborn law on the heart and on our conscience that everybody has. And, and, and when you 
when you follow that, when, when you're doing the right thing, then, then you're, you're operating in the way that God has, has designed for you. You're doing the good God means for you to do. I mean, so, so in every people, every society throughout the history of the world, there's evidence of this inborn. I mean, so, so in no society, in no society is it okay For me to come and just take your stuff because I want it more than you do. In no society is it okay for me to just walk up and to, and to punch you in the nose just because I think it would be funny to watch you bleed. In, in no society is that okay. So the evidence that some right or wrong, some standard is written upon all of us. And, and Paul's saying that God will, will, will judge people justly. It'll be fair on the final day, whether they had the Mosaic Law, whether they didn't. Because if you didn't, it, there, you still have, there's still written on your heart and on your conscience rightness and, and wrongness. But the truth is our, our consciences aren't what they're supposed to be. We suppress the truth and we don't always follow our conscience. And... But Paul is saying God is, is right to judge those who know the law but haven't kept it. And he's, he's also warning people that he's going to judge those who, who have an internal law and they've not kept that either. And that pretty much sums up all of us and then on ver in verse 16, he says, And all this happens on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men and women by Christ Jesus. Which means you, you, you could clearly be in the place where everybody around you thinks, you know what, that is a... That is a righteous guy. That, that, is a, that, is a, that is a righteous gal. I mean, I've never seen them do anything bad. I've never heard anything untoward come out of their mouth. I, they, they, um, they, you know, they, they look at, out for others. I mean, everything I see, that, that, you know, that, that could be you. You could be the person people talk about that way. but that's not going to be the standard of God's judgment. In, in fact, all your secrets will be revealed. But Paul's point, that nobody, nobody has a leg up. N nobody has any inherent advantage when it comes to the standard by which God judges. Because God is impartial, and that is fundamental to understanding the gospel. It is fundamental to understanding that this gospel is good news. And it's, it's essential that you understand that you'll stand before God and be judged. essential 
that, that it's essential that you come to the devastating reality that you, you will stand before God and be judged. By the wrath of God on the day of wrath. And you cannot understand the gospel. You, you cannot understand the, the cross, which is at the center of the gospel. The, the cross, the, the, the brutal and bloody and humiliating death of Jesus, the Son of God, on a cross. You, you cannot fully understand that. Until you clearly understand that God will judge you. And nobody survives that judgment on their own. You say, well, how, how is this good news? Well, it, it helps us to understand the good news. It's the, it's the, we said last week, it's the black velvet, the, the dark backdrop of humanity in which the, this diamond of the gospel is placed so that we can see it clearly. Now, if this were a camp setting, you know, we were all at camp, Go back to your cabin and have quiet time. I'd leave it right there, you know. I mean, sort of wrestling with this hopelessness of everybody's going to be judged and nobody survives the judgment. And, you know, gosh, I thought we came here to hear about Jesus and all we're hearing about is the wrath and the fury of God. And I'd leave you right there. And I'd send you back to your cabin time to wrestle with this. Because I know you'd come back tonight. And I could tell you the rest of the story. And, and I'm tempted to just leave it there until next week, but you're not going to come back. You know, I mean, you'd be like, I, I ain't going to that church anymore. This passage is not about how to be saved. This passage is about the reality that God will judge everyone impartially. He will tell us how we are to be saved. It is by grace and through faith. But I, I want to end this morning by giving you a glimpse of how do you survive the judgment if all men and all women are to be judged. And I'm going to do that from Revelation chapter 20. And if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'll, I'll um, try to make this super clear. But this is the judgment. So when it talks about the day of wrath and the wrath of God is revealed and on the day, of, this, is, this is that day. It's Revelation chapter 20. And it is the great white throne judgment. 
and listen to how it goes. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Everybody's standing before the throne and the, and the books get opened. You know, you know what's in the books? Your stuff. Your life. What you're going to be judged for. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and Hades gave up the dead that were in it, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name... was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you survive that judgment? Everyone will stand before the throne. And the books will be opened. Your, your book, your life, it will be there. But then it says there was another book that was opened. The book of life. So how the judgment works is you come and you take your place and you stand before God who is the righteous judge before his great white throne and all of his majesty to give an account for your life. And where it starts is he'll open the, the book of life. The, the book of the Lamb, it is also called the book of those who have trusted Jesus as Savior. And he'll look to see if your name is there. And if it is, he'll go, oh, it's great. Well done. Well done. It's like all your stats, all of Jesus' stats, all, it all gets counted to you. You're, you're Ezekiel Elliott now. You're, you, who Jesus is gets counted to you. If your name's not written here, it's okay. It's not here. Let's, let's go over here. And now you stand in judgment. And your life's the criteria. And, and nobody survives that. So that's why this is good news. Jesus came. And the judgment you deserve, he took upon himself. He stood in your place to be judged. The wrath and the fury and the tribulation and the distress. And he bore all of that. And when you believe, 
that you can be saved because what he has done for you. Then your name's written here. And you will stand in the day of judgment. And all that Jesus is will be counted to you. Because God is impartial. Let me ask this morning. Is, is your name written here? Have you trusted Jesus? Have you, have you, is, the, is the gospel good news? Because you clearly understand the bad news of your condition. And if it's not, I invite you this morning. You can make it that to get, okay, I'm in. I didn't know that. I didn't understand it. Now I get it. And I don't want to be judged on my life. I need a Savior. I, I have to have someone else to save me. And you can this morning by faith believe, you, you, you trust that Jesus has done for you all that needed to be done. And in that, you're saved. So if you would, would you bow with me and, and come back in the next couple of weeks. We, so much more to this. There's so much more I want you to know and see. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do this morning, and that's to make these things clear to us. We, we, we don't want to just jump out of here and go, well, Phew, we know the end of the story, and so everything's okay. No, no, Father, we want to wrestle with the reality that none of us survive a judgment that we all deserve. And Father, would we let the terror of your wrath help us to see the beauty of your gospel? And if there's anybody here this morning that has not taken hold of the gospel, of the truth that Jesus came to save them, Father, would you grant them faith to believe this morning? We, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit.